As we have seen thus far in Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, he has thus far charged the Gentile pagan world for their sinful depravity and rejection of God. But now Paul is going to show that the Jews are also guilty before God and therefore also are guilty of sin and therefore are deserving of judgment. He picks this theme up in chapter 1 and it really goes all the way to chapter 3 and verse 8. As I said last time, it's really not until chapter 3 and verse 21 that Paul will pick back up on that theme of God's righteousness as the saving solution of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He mentioned that in verse 17. He'll pick back up on that theme in chapter 3 verse 21. You could say that from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20 that Paul is on a sort of rabbit trail. It's a necessary rabbit trail. Because he wants to show one thing, and that is the guilt of all men, whether Jew or Gentile. Nobody is able to escape the judgment of God. And you need to understand that Paul was a skilled rhetorician. He uses the skills of a rhetorician in preaching the gospel. He utilizes a common technique in his day known as the diatribe. The diatribe is simply a literary device that sets up an imaginary dialogue with someone opposing the argument that the teacher is setting forth. Diatribes include soul-searching rhetorical questions posed by the teacher with the purpose of eliciting potential objections by the student of which the teacher emphatically denies. And the teacher's emphatic rejections of potential objections by the student expose the faulty presuppositions of the student and thereby, thereby enable the teacher on the one hand to show the faulty reasoning of the student and on the other hand to solidify the teacher's argument as truthful. Paul is the teacher and he is entering into an imaginary dialogue with someone that would object to everything he has taught thus far. We believe that the diatribe was Paul's chief way of preaching, and we believe that he used it in debates and conversations with real people as well. So if you've ever wondered what it was like to sit under the great apostle Paul's preaching, look no further. What he says is powerful, it is logical, and it is, it is very effective. And if you move too slowly through Paul's argument, you really miss the point. That's why we're moving faster than maybe you would like. It's important also to distinguish between Paul's immediate audience that receives this letter. These are Roman Christians, largely Gentile believers, and then the imaginary dialogue partner. The congregation at Rome were Gentile believers, but the imaginary dialogue partner who Paul describes in verse 1 as, oh man, is an unbelieving Jew. When we get to uh, chapter 11, Paul warns Gentile Christians, for example, not to presume on God's kindness, that just because they are a part of God's family tree, the olive tree, just because they're visibly part of God's covenant people, that does not guarantee personal salvation. And so I believe that the unbelieving Jew, that is someone part of God's covenant people in the old covenant, is being addressed here, beginning in chapter 2, but the warning has application even to us today in the New Covenant who are Gentiles. It's a warning to anyone who makes a profession of faith but proves not to be a possessor of true salvation. So Paul is likely adapting a basic sermon 
that he would have preached in Jewish synagogues, utilizing Greek rhetorician, the skills of argumentation associated with that, Paul was trained in that school, is if to say to the Roman professing Christians, if the shoe fits, then wear it. And the force of Paul's logic is that any sort of self-righteous attitude similar to the Jew of the Old Covenant will not help them in escaping God's judgment because God is an impartial judge. He can read the hearts of every human being. And so the imaginary self-righteous Jew that Paul addresses isn't even identified until verse 17. You call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. But he does this on purpose because any Jew who would have heard Paul's catalog of sins regarding the Gentiles in verses 18 through 32 would have boasted. They would have enjoyed Paul's scathing denunciation of the idolatrous and immoral Gentile world of pagans. They would have cheered Paul on saying, yeah, Paul, give it to them. Give it to those ungodly sinners. Give them what they deserve. Send the fire of your wrath down on them. Similar to James and John, who asked Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven. Calvin remarks on this passage that Paul's reproof is directed against hypocrites, any hypocrites who dazzle the eyes of men by displays of outward sanctity and think themselves to be accepted by God. These are saintlings, Calvin calls them, who could not have been inclined to be included in the first list because they weren't Gentiles, they were Jews, and yet Paul says they are inexcusable because in themselves they knew the judgment of God and yet transgressed the law. And what Calvin says applies to any religious hypocrite. Anyone who judgmentally looks down their nose at someone else and judges them for their sin without first considering the sin of their own hearts. And Paul's indictment of Jews really unfolds to us in two stages. In verses 1 through 16, which is what we're going to look at this morning, we see one stage, and then in verses 17 through 29, another stage. I'll just summarize this for you. In both stages, it contains an accusation of Jews as hypocritical sinners. And then in both stages... Paul shows that the sins of the Jews are not excused merely because they compose God's primary people, his covenant people, his special people. Just because you possess the law, just because you've been circumcised does not mean you're automatically accepted before God. So that his overall point is that just as Gentiles and all people in general have turned away from God's revelation given to them in nature, chapter 1, verse 20, so too the Jews have turned away in disobedience And they're even more culpable because they have been given the special revelation of God. They have spurned that. They have violated Mosaic Code. In fact, the word in verse 1, therefore, is the Greek word dio. It reveals that Paul is drawing an inference from what he has just stated in chapter 1, especially the truth in verse 32, that though they know God's righteous decree... Those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. To say that nobody is without excuse. Paul is seeking to level the playing field of Jew and Gentile to show that both are condemned before God because both have transgressed God's law. Whatever law they've been given, contrary to first century beliefs of Jews, the sins of the Jews will be held 
with the same standard that God holds the Gentiles to. In fact, twice in this passage, Paul repeats the phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 9. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 10, repeated for emphasis, that there is no double standard with God. God is judge, therefore he is an impartial judge. Now again, you've got to understand that Paul's target is the unbelieving Jew. But the application of this passage goes out to any self-righteous people. If the shoe fits, wear it. The Jews, on their part, possessed an attitude of superiority, thinking that God would not judge them, or that His judgment of them would be light in comparison to the Gentiles. One extra-biblical Jewish source during this day said, Now therefore weigh in a balance our iniquities and those of the inhabitants of the world, God, and so it will be found which way the turn of the scale will incline. When have the inhabitants of the earth not sinned in thy sight? Or what nation has kept thy commandments so well? Or another place, for when they, the Israelites, were tried, though they were being disciplined in mercy, they learned how the ungodly were tormented when when judged in wrath. For thou didst test them as a father does in warning, but thou didst examine the ungodly as a stern king. In other words, God's going to be a stern judge To Gentiles, oh, but to the Jews, he's going to be a father of mercy. There is no doubt that Paul is drawing on these traditional Jewish sources to say these are traditional ways of thinking about God, but they are wrong ways to think about God. And while we're at it, let's also talk about the Gentiles. There was another side of the pagan world of idolatry and immorality that was known as the moralists. In fact, Paul had a contemporary in his day a man by the name of Seneca, he was a Stoic moralist. It is said that he purportedly served as Nero's tutor. But Seneca would have possessed the same fundamental attitude of superiority of the Jews. He was just a moralist. He wasn't a Jew. And so Paul is saying that the only way a Greek moralist or a religious Jew and any of us can escape God's judgment is only in Jesus Christ. That's the force of the argument. It has been told that nomadic tribes used to roam ancient Russia, much as American Indians once roamed in North America. And the tribe that controlled the choicest hunting grounds and natural resources was always led by an exceptionally strong, physically strong and wise chief. He ruled not only because of his superior physical strength, but also because of his impartiality. And one time when a rash of thefts broke out, This certain chief proclaimed that if the thief were caught, he would be punished by ten lashes from the tribal whip master. But as the thefts continued, everyone knew that he was the only one strong enough, the chief, to endure that sort of punishment. And to their horror, the chief turned out, or the thief turned out to be the chief's aged mother. Speculation immediately began to swirl as to whether or not he would actually sentence her to the announced punishment. In other words, would he satisfy his love by excusing her or would he satisfy his law by sentencing her to what would surely be her death? Well, true to his integrity, the chief sentenced his mother to the 40 lashes. But true to his integrity and true to his love for his mother, just before the whip came down on her back, he surrounded her frail body with his own body, taking upon himself the penalty he had prescribed for her. And in an infinitely deeper way, Christ 
took the penalty of all of his people upon his back at Calvary. Paul's point here is that if you're not found in Christ, you will receive the wrath of his whip. And in verses 1 through 16, Paul argues that God's judgment on sinners is impartial. His fairness as judge is seen in three lines of evidence revealing how human responsibility for sin and thus God's judgment is actually just. Three lines of evidence. Number one, Paul tells us that our lips seal God's judgment on us in verses 1 through 5. Here is the principle. Our judgment is self-incriminating. It's self-indicting. Our lips have sealed God's judgment on us because we have lied about others, we have lied about ourselves, and we've lied about our God. First of all, we've lied about others. Notice verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It was Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century political philosopher, who said that some people are forced to keep themselves in, either their, own, in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. In other words, there's a human tendency to be so critical of others that we rarely see our own flaws. And Paul's point here is that we are self-deceived if that is the case. He's referring to the imaginary Jew when he says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. It's as if he says, have you forgotten that you are a mere man? Do you not realize, therefore, as a man, your judgment of others is, is flawed? He goes on to say, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. He says this not because making judgments is wrong in and of itself. The Jew was right to agree with Paul's assessment that due to their willful idolatry and immorality, the Gentiles deserve God's wrath. But Paul goes on to say to the imaginary critic that such judgment is a form of a lie about others because when we lie about others and say they are worse than ourselves, when we do the same things... We are an imperfect judge, he says in verse 1, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, Paul is saying that since Jews are all aware that sin is worthy of death, verse 32, evidenced by the fact that they're able to make judgments, which you know they, that people have broken God's law, that very fact proves that they too are without excuse. And that in judging others, they are actually pronouncing condemnation on themselves. If the measure of judgment applied to others to be consistent with God's justice is also applied to themselves. You see, our problem is that our lips are caught in a lie when we hypocritically judge others with a finger because we do so in a way that dishonestly says we are better than the next guy. Therefore, we're all guilty of tailoring our sins to suit our own carnal appetites and then to strut around as if our suit looks better on us than the sin-tattered clothes of the next person. We say and lie that our suit is cleaner, brighter, tighter, better than the next guy's. And that sort of self-congratulation condemns us. Paul says we condemn ourselves by our own words because we are using our own judgment. Now understand, Jesus was not against judging. After all, he is the judge of heaven and earth, and he expects his people to make clear judgments about sin. But it's the unclear judgments he takes issue with, the type that fudge the truth in our judgment to make others look worse than we are. Remember what Jesus said? He said, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. 
Or as Paul says in another place on a different subject, but the same principle, let God be true, though everyone a liar. Before going on to quote Psalm 51, 4, which in full says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So for every bony finger we point at others to judge them and accuse them, there are two blameless fingers of God's judgment that are pointed at us. We must learn to remove the plank from our own eyes before we ever try to remove the speck out of our brother's eyes. Otherwise, Paul's saying in verse 1, we condemn ourselves not only um, for practicing the very same type of things, but also we condemn ourselves because we have lied about the other person. Calvin quotes a famous saying by his own, in his own day when he says, They who scrutinize the lives of others lay claim themselves to innocence, temperance, and all virtues. Paul is saying in verse 1, You agree with me rightly that Gentiles are idolaters, but by your self-righteousness you're making an idol of yourself. You, you are placing your standards and your judgments above God's. And that is always true about the self-righteous person. They lie about others thinking their clothes are cleaner. But although the clothes of the other person are dirtied, their clothes, their suit is dirtied by the same types of sins. It's interesting because in chapter 2, Paul will go on to describe Jews as being marked by boasting, arrogance, theft, idolatry, and adultery. All sins that he condemned the Gentiles for committing. And of course, in typical style of hypocrites, Their own lips sink their ships into the waters of God's judgment because if they've lied about others, that means they've also lied about themselves. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. Paul says in verse 2, We know, that is you and I and the whole world, that you're playing a fool's game. The judgment of God rightly falls on those, everyone, you included, Paul says, who practice such things. He says here, God's judgment is both righteous, it rightly falls, and it is certain on those who practice such things, regardless of who they are. Psalm 96, 13, he will judge the world in righteousness. God's measuring stick is accurate, Paul is saying. It's not flawed like man's. So any so-called religious person that has shut his eyes to the truth that God is the final judge is only lying to themselves. They may even some, somehow swallow the lie in the midst of their prideful blindness that they'll escape God's judgment. But Paul's not going to let such a one off the hook. He appeals to the Jews in verse 3 in a manner that hopefully shakes them out of their drunken stupor. Notice verse 3. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He uses that phrase again, O man, to show the religious person that he's an imperfect mortal. He is dealing with a holy God. Does he really think that he is going to escape the judgment of God as easily as he escaped his own judgment, which was a double standard? Is he foolishly going to suppose that he's out from harm of God's judgment? This is a little bit of sarcasm, and I quite like it, because I think sarcasm goes a long way with hypocrites. Hypocrites are always under such a strong spell that gentleness only coddles them. It only lulls them back to shutting their eyes to the reality of God's impartial judgment. Quoting Calvin again, let us then remember that this is the best mode of dealing with hypocrisy in order to awaken it from its inebriety, that is to draw it forth to the light of God's judgment. If the religious person's lies about others condemned him, then how does he expect to avoid God's condemnation? That's Paul's point. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our own lips seal God's judgment upon us, especially when we are hypocrites, because we have lied about others, and we've therefore lied to ourselves. But worst of all, we've also lied about our God. We see this in verses 4 and 5, with the knowledge that nobody escapes God's judgment. Paul asks a very penetrating rhetorical question in verse 4. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I mean, the Jews thought that the riches of God's kindness toward them as a people exempted them from his judgment. But remember, Jesus said, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He then said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So appealing to God's character is a fool's errand if one concludes that merely identifying as a member of God's family tree exempts one from the hurricane of God's judgment. And notice in verse 4, the word translated presume, it's kataphronized. It's, it's a word that literally means to think lightly of. It even has connotations of showing contempt. It could be translated as despise. And that's the way that it's used in 1 Timothy 4.12 when Paul told Timothy, Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Same word is also used by Jesus in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters for either who Hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. Paul is saying you have despised God by presuming upon him. Jews were revealing their contempt of God because they took advantage, verse 4, of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. They presumed on his kindness thinking it was a license to sin. After all, they were God's special people. But notice how Paul defines the characteristics of God's kindness. He defines it as forbearance and patience, denoting God's patient withholding or suspension of judgment upon sinners, which is what they deserve. It appears that Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is actually taking words straight from the Jews' mouths themselves. Words recorded in the apocryphal book of wisdom, which was essentially a a Greek-Jewish polemic against Gentile idolatry and immorality. In wisdom, chapter 15, after a long catalog of Gentile idolatry and immorality, the author says, but you, our God, are kind, and you are true and patient, and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we're still yours, God. And Paul's saying that's such false security. Because you're not living faithfully to the covenant. And they might say to Paul, yeah, but the Lord is compassionate and gracious and and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And Paul will say, yeah, but that is manipulative theologizing. You're just getting God to fit your own lifestyle. You see, it's only a bad judge who refuses to punish evil. God is not a bad judge. He's a good judge. And Paul is saying, do we wrongly assume God's goodness means there are times that he's going to display his justice by holding some people accountable for their sins while not holding others accountable for their sins? And the reason why the Jews and many today abuse God's kindness and taking advantage of it is expressed by Paul at the end of verse 4. Paul says, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance... In other words, have you not recognized that God's paternal care and withholding judgment on the one hand and actually showering you with gifts 
Do you not see that you're taking that for granted? He does this to lead you to repentance for biting at the hand that is feeding you. Remember what Paul says in another place, for godly grief, that is grief over our sin against God, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But then he goes on to say, whereas worldly grief, that's false repentance, leads to death. Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? But it is God alone who grants repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25, left to ourselves, we will not be marked by repentance, we will be marked by recalcitrance. That is cold hearts of stubborn refusal to turn from our sin. And Paul points that out in verse 5, notice the text, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Taking advantage of God's goodness leads to more guilt because we falsely assume immunity from God's judgment. So the religious hypocrite develops not a greater appreciation for God, a greater love for God, but rather a hard and impenitent heart. And that was the sort of spiritual state that marked the Old Testament people of God. A hard and unrepentant heart was a heart that trusted an outward circumcision instead of... um, True circumcision to avoid true repentance. It was a false security. Deuteronomy 10, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Don't be recalcitrant and hard to God. Or Jeremiah, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. There Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God. Paul will bring this up in chapter 2. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision done by the Spirit. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the hearts of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. So hardening one's heart and refusing to repent will eventually bring God's judgment. That's the point of verse 5. No matter how much His grace suspends it and withholds it for a time. This is a universal principle. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. We must be so careful not to harden our hearts. And this is not just an Old Testament universal principle. It's true for the New Covenant as well. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter rest. That's another way of saying they will receive my judgment. By taking the good gifts of God's kindness with an open hand while sinning with the other hand and refusing to give up one's sin and repenting. Notice what it results in, the end of verse 5. Paul says it results in storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I mean, this is staggering. You mean to tell me, Paul, that the more good things a hard-hearted sinner takes from God, the more he piles up God's wrath? upon his head for judgment day that's exactly what paul's saying again a little bit of sarcasm 
Paul's using a banking metaphor, and he's saying that by the sinner harboring their sin, taking gifts from God, and harboring their sin, they're investing in eternal matters. And their life savings of retirement in eternity is going to amount to storing up God's wrath. On the day of wrath, that refers to the judgment day. Day of wrath is language that the prophet Joel used, Zephaniah used it, Amos used it. But it's also a New Testament reality as well. Consider the words of James, the half-brother of our Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your silver and gold have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back for fraud, are crying out against you, and and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Quoting Calvin again, he says about Romans 2, this is a remarkable passage. We may hence learn that the ungodly not only accumulate for themselves daily a a heavier weight of God's judgments, but the gifts of God which they continually enjoy shall increase their own condemnation. For For an account of them will all be required and it will be found that it will be justly imputed to them as an extreme wickedness that they have been made worse through God's gifts. Let us then, Calvin says, take heed lest by unlawful use of blessings we lay up for ourselves a cursed treasure. And as Paul says in verse 5, we have done it to ourselves and we deserve it because on that day it will be a day, notice verse 5, of God's righteous judgment that is revealed. And God's judgment is not like ours. It's not biased in our favor. It's fair. So the fact that our own lips have sunk our ships apart from Christ into the flood waters of God's judgment is the result of lies. Lies we have told about others that they are worse sinners than us. Lies we've told about ourselves that somehow we'll escape God's judgment in the end. And lies we've told about our God that His continual kindness is meant to indicate that He's not really serious about judging us. This passage exposes us. It exposes, for example, the deceitfulness of the human heart We are all like vehicles driving through life with blind spots. And we often fail to see the idols of our own hearts, but we are quick to judge the idols of others. Now we need Christian fellowship to hold us accountable, but it should be a free exchange of ideas, not one person or two people constantly criticizing others. The deceitfulness of the human heart. Also the secret to repentance which is found in meditating on God's kindness. You see, as long as we are bitter and ungrateful towards God's gifts, the less likely we are to repent from sinful patterns. Christians all the time wonder why they can't overcome certain sins. Part of the problem is they aren't grateful for the life that God has given them. John MacArthur says, rather than asking why God allows bad things to happen to seemingly good people, we should ask why he allows seemingly good things to happen to obviously bad people. We also learn from this passage that we have a stewardship that determines the quality of our experience in eternity, the quality of reward in heaven, the quality of judgment in hell. But it's not only our own lips that seal God's judgment on us. Number two, it's our lives, 
Our lives seal God's judgment. We see this in verses 6 through 11. Our own works are the standard of God's judgment. The body of the work of our lives seals our judgment. The substance of our lives will lead to the sentencing of God. Notice the substance of our lives in verses 6 through 10. The standard is first stated in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. This is continuing the thought from verse 5 regarding the day of wrath, this climactic culmination of God's wrath. Unlike the wrath of verse 18, which is present and continual, this is the day that the books are open, the sheep are separated from the goats, the, the, the wheat is separated from the tares. This is a controversial verse, but it shouldn't be. Let me quote Calvin again. He says, They who pervert this passage for the purpose of building up justification by works or teaching justification by works deserve most fully to be laughed at even by children. It's clear that Paul believes in justification by faith alone. That's why he's writing the letter. Chapter 1, verse 17. He'll get back to it in chapter 3 and verse 21. But that doesn't change the fact that rewards in heaven are distributed according to one's works, as verse 6 says. And there are really three primary things that can be said about God's righteous judgment on that day. The certainty of it, verse 6, he will render. That's the certainty of it. The universality of it, he will render to each one. And the uniformity of it, he will render to each one according to his works. There's uniformity. Judgment is equitable. Now, Jesus was talking about good works flowing from one who had been justified by faith when he urged his followers in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for there your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It was Augustine who stated that and God distributing rewards according to our level of obedience, that he was really crowning his own works in us. And so Paul is quoting Proverbs 24, 12 here in verse 6. Does not he who keeps watch over your soul not also repay man according to his work? Or even consistent with Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God, the Lord searches the hearts, tests the minds, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. But one can easily misinterpret Paul if you don't remember what he said before. Chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by what? Faith. And you don't remember what comes after. Chapter 3, and verse 20, what does it say? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone. What are works then? Well, they are the outward expression of one's faith. Or they are the outward expression of one's lack of faith. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves doesn't come alone. It comes with works. And unbelievers live their, their lives revealing what they believe in. If they live according to legalism, they try to work their way to heaven by a show of outward religion. If they live according to antinomianism, they presume on God's grace. They lack any body of good works indicating that they've received God's grace. That's what Paul's speaking about. In verses 7 through 11, it forms a, a chiasm, and you don't need to get caught up in the technicality of that. Paul's simple point is that he will judge men on the last day, not according to their profession, but the proof of who they really are. Were they really inside of Christ or were they outside of Christ? The evidence is their works. Paul doesn't overturn the external standard of God's law. He upholds it. 
And yet he says at the same time, no amount of law abiding and rule keeping can ever justify the sinner. God's standard is perfect obedience to his law. Ten out of ten commandments for the duration of one's life. But since only Christ did this, this is why we need Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is done what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Christ is the standard. Christ is the judge. But Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory and from his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So the wicked will be punished on account of their works and according to their works, which means hell has varying degrees of punishment. Which also means, Jesus taught this, that heaven has varying degrees of reward. The good works of the believers serve as the evidence they belong to Christ, they've received eternal life as a gracious reward of God, the quality of which is determined by the works performed and the strength of the Holy Spirit. But since Paul is not expounding on the gospel but on the law, he's really laying down the several principles of justice. Charles Hodge, the eminent Reformed theologian, comments, he says this, and I quote, And as the law not only says that death is the wages of sin, but also that those who keep its precepts shall live by them, so the Apostle Paul says that God will punish the wicked and reward the righteous. This is perfectly consistent with what he afterward teaches, that there are none righteous, that there are none who so obey the law and to be entitled to the life which he promises, and that for which the gospel provides a plan for justification without works, a plan for saving those whom the law condemns. He is here combating the false hopes of the Jews who, though trusting in the law, were by the principles of the law exposed to condemnation. All, therefore, Hodge says, that this passage teaches is that irrespective of the gospel to those either who never heard it or to those who, having heard it, rejected it, the principle of judgment will always be law. That is always the standard. So that's the standard stated in verse 6. But now we see the standard substantiated in verses 7 through 10. And this is where we see the chiastic structure because in verse 7 and then skipping down to verse 10, Paul speaks about good lives of true believers. And then in the middle in verses 8 and 9, he speaks about the bad lives of unbelievers. So there's a chiastic structure. Notice the good lives. Verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The presence of saving faith in the hearts of God's elect will be disclosed by the presence of a good life. As James says, faith without works is dead. I will show you my faith by my works. So Paul describes the good life marked by patience and well-doing, those who seek for glory and honor and immortality. This describes the life of a true believer, saved by God's sovereign grace. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the type of life that proves they've been given eternal life. The descriptions are somewhat general. Patience just refers to manly fortitude. It was actually used of soldiers in battle who in the thick of battle gave as much as they got. To indicate the fact that a true believer is a fighter. He fights selfishness. He fights lust. He fights for the truth. 
He fights for unity with his brothers and sisters who are in armed conflict with him. He perseveres. It's a patient pursuit that is found, verse 7, in well-doing. That is to say, it's a perseverance that does what is right, that does what is required, regardless of the personal cost. He is a heavenly-minded man, as verse 7 says. He seeks for glory and honor and immortality like a well-trained soldier. He is focused. He isn't looking to himself and his good works to get to heaven. He knows he's going to heaven, and he keeps his eyes in heaven on Christ, trusting in God alone for future glory, honor, immortality, all the things promised to him in eternity. He lives by persevering faith. You could put it this way. He walks the straight and narrow because his life has a bent toward heaven and he understands that he's only sustained by God's grace I really believe and I can't prove it but I really believe that Paul potentially is speaking about himself here he said in Philippians I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share his sufferings becoming like him in death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead Paul wasn't describing work salvation he was saying that he viewed life as a race for eternal life ever reaching for the finish line to receive the full measure of eternal peace that passes all understanding, the fullness of joy inexpressible and full of glory, to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He was looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith, the author who gave him his faith, the perfecter who guaranteed the preserving of his faith. And Paul always lived with the tension that he had to persevere even though God was the one sustaining him. He knew what Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or what the author of Hebrews says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm and to the end. And then note verse 10, more of the same. He speaks about the reception of glory and honor and peace. He says this is for everyone who does good. That is the true Christian. Not because he's a good person, but because by the power of the Holy Spirit, after being justified by faith alone, he gives, is given a power to live a good life. But it's God who gives eternal life. Verse 7, he will give eternal life. And notice the principle of God's justice, the Jew first and also the Greek. This is repeated in verse 9 with respect to God's judgment. Because the Jews were the first to hear the gospel, so too will they be judged first. This is echoes, I think, to whom much is given, much will be required. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of verse 10, We shall not be judged by a standard of absolute perfection, but what will be expected of us is the kind of work that is always the result of salvation. And upon that work, eternal rewards are dependent. That's the good life. But in contrast to that, Paul now describes the bad life or bad lives. Go back to verses 8 and 9. Whereas believers on judgment day are the recipients of God's favors, unbelievers are the recipients of God's frowns. Our goal in life is what we seek, our works are what we do, and our end is where we actually go. So the those of verses 7 and 10 is now contrasted with the those of verses 8 and 9. Note the contrast, but for those who unbelievers and how are they described well what did they pursue those who are self-seeking epithias it literally could be rendered contentious 
John Murray, the eminent Reformed theologian, describes it as those who are of contention. It basically describes someone who is at odds against God. They live a self-centered life, not a God-centered life. They're contentious. And such a life is a bad way to live, Paul says, because man's chief end is to glorify God, not self. And so, obviously, as verse 8 goes on to say, these sorts of people do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. So their disobedience to God's law results in what Paul promised in verse 5, that there will be, notice the text, wrath and fury, verse 8. This is the exercise of God's judgment. God's stored up wrath will be dispensed on judgment day upon the wicked. And we've already looked at the word wrath from verse 18, but Paul uses another word describing God's judgment here in verse 8, and that is the word fury. It was Cicero, uh, Calvin points out, who described thumos as a sudden burning of anger. So here's the picture you need to get. Unbelievers live their lives splurging their pleasures wasting their investments in slot machines that when they stand before God on judgment day will pour forth a treasure of wrath and fury and indignation. And verse 9 just reinforces the truth of verse 8. There will be tribulation, this is perhaps a reference to outward affliction, and distress, potentially a reference to inward affliction. Someone in hell has inward and outer pain. The words wrath and fury of verse 8 describe the exercise of God's judgment. Tribulation and distress describe the experience of that judgment. There's tribulation, philipsis. That's a strong word that can be defined as experiencing pain to the point of nearly breaking. That's hell. And distress, stenokoria is the Greek word. It conveys the idea of being cramped for lack of space. So, Hell will be a place to the unbeliever of unspeakable torment from the hand of God, experiencing pain inwardly and outwardly in the soul and the mind and the body, as verse 9 says, for every human being who does evil. It's like a claustrophobic panic attack with no way out because God's furious hand is upon the sinner. And once again, there are varying degrees of punishment. The Jew first, Paul says, and also the Greek. The Jew was privileged. He was given special revelation. Therefore, he's more culpable. But what a warning this is to religious people today who have associated with the church. The author of Hebrews describes them in a warning. He says, the author of Hebrews does, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there will no longer remain a sacrifice of sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Those who are sanctified through the right of baptism, through the right of church membership, through the right of becoming a member of a church, a religious person, they are guilty of trampling the blood of the Son of God, the blood of the covenant 
and they receive a stricter judgment. It really is amazing to think about the fact that we are part of a biblical church that upholds the authority of God's word and speaks God's raw truth. And it would be easy for us to come here and think how blessed we are. Yes, you are blessed, but you may be cursed because you are more culpable for what you hear regarding God's truth than the superficial Christian that goes to some church that's named after a rock group or some weird time like 1122 the substantiated or substance of one's life then leads to the sentencing of God God is no respecter of persons notice verse 11 for God shows no partiality underline that verse and highlight it circle it God shows no partiality interestingly because in the ancient world it was not expected that a judge would demonstrate justice in the law courts the poor were not treated the same way as the rich and so the Jews began to believe the lie that somehow they were favored by God but shall not the judge of all the earth do right and what does it mean to do right it means that he gives a right sentence there are are good people and there are bad people And it is only the people who are found in Christ who produce good works. And there are evil people who only produce bad works who will be judged. So it's not just our lips that seal God's judgment. It's also our lives, the body of work. But there is a third, a third line of evidence that we are responsible when we are judged by God Our lips not only seal God's judgment, our lives not only seal God's judgment, but the laws that he gives us seals God's judgment. We see this in verses 12 through 16. God's law is his impartial standard. And here we see his law summarized, exemplified, and personified. Notice, first of all, the law's standard summarized. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Wow. What is Paul saying? He's simply saying this, all men will be judged by the light of revelation that's been given to them, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they're religious or have no religious affiliation. The ground of judgment is our works, but the ruler, the standard is God's law. Technically speaking, there aren't two laws, there's only one. But for the Gentile, he viewed God's law from a different angle than the one... than the way that the Jew did. The Jew had eyeglasses where they saw 2020, the law of God, written on stone tablets. The Gentile, it was fuzzy, and yet they'll still be held accountable. For all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentile, will also perish without the law. The law here refers to the Pentateuch, more strictly the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses upon Mount Sinai. The Gentile wasn't given that. But then he goes on to speak about the Jews and all who have sinned under the law. That is God's special revelation of the Ten Commandments. So for the Gentile, Paul says, his sin without the law means he will perish without the law. For the Jew, Paul says, his sin under the law means he'll be judged by the law. On the one hand, the Gentile is not off the hook because technically he didn't violate Mosaic codes. He was without the law given to Israel, but he still wasn't without the law because he had the law in his heart. Paul's going to describe that in the next verses. He's going to live without the law, not obey it, and he's going to go to hell without the law because he's transgressed it. And on the other hand, the Jew can't get off the hook. They can't get out of God's court on a technicality or a loophole just because they gave lip service to being under the law as God's special people, they're not off the hook. 
They lived knowing the law of God, knowing that God would judge it, and they still transgressed it, so they will go to hell with the law. The point is, there's no automatic salvation. The Gentile cannot claim automatic salvation because he never heard the gospel, never heard the law of God, and the Jew can't claim automatic salvation because they're part of the people of God. And this might seem like a double standard for for the Jew until we get to the next verses. At this point, I think it's helpful to recount a story that I heard I think it was in chapel when I was in college. The story is of a man seemingly indifferent to God, indifferent to spiritual things. He was on his deathbed, and of all things, he was reading a book, and the book was the Bible. And a friend came to visit him for the last time because the guy was going to die, and he asked his friend why he, of all people, was reading the Bible. The dying man, knowing that God's judgment soon awaited him, said, I'm reading the Bible because I'm looking for loopholes. Well, all men like that, they know the difference between right and wrong. Regardless of their exposure to religion, all men by nature are religious. God has revealed himself to them, yet we all secretly think that on judgment day, we can play the part of a defense attorney, that we can discover a loophole in God's law, that we can find a way to escape from entering a guilty plea, such as absolutely impossible, says Paul, every human without Christ as their advocate will perish in the lake of fire. That's his point. And Paul addresses man's culpability of sinning against God's law next. After the law's standard summarized, he moves to discuss the law's standard exemplified. Verses 13 through 15, verse 13, this is a reference to the Jew first specifically. Paul says, for... This is pointing back to verse 13 and and the Jews who possess the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It was through the hearing of the scriptures generally and the law specifically that Israelites had the law. They sat under the law, verse 12, that is they were instructed in it. It was the custom to read the law of God every Sabbath in the synagogue. But Paul's point is what good is it if it goes in one ear and comes out the other? Because you have actually heard that you're a sinner and broken God's law. That doesn't make you righteous before God. Actually, it makes the exact opposite. It makes you guilty before God. Because the purpose of the law is not merely to hear it, but to obey it. And nobody can be declared righteous before God by doing it because no one can obey it perfectly. There is none righteous, no, not one. Remember, Jesus said to the Jewish crowds, You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But then Jesus shows they, they didn't fully listen to what they heard because otherwise they would have obeyed God and not had murder in their hearts. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see, Paul is doing the same exact technique that Jesus used. And he used it in the Sermon on the Mount and he used quite a bit of sarcasm. For example, Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew five forty-eight. Now, neither Jesus nor Paul nor James teach justification by works. Instead, they're instructing religious hypocrites with the principles of justice. The standard is perfection. If one chooses to look to the law for justification, then you better obey all of the law. So Paul is saying, in effect, if you want to depend upon your works, fine, but you better satisfy the demands of the law to be justified. That means perfect obedience to God's law because God's law is the standard of judgment. 
This is because God is just, He is impartial, He will judge every man in accordance with their knowledge of God's law. The standard does not change. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But the standard is still the law. Jesus had to be obedient in our place. This is why the active obedience of Christ is absolutely fundamental to an orthodox understanding of the gospel. Paul said in Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. It is absolutely impossible, but it doesn't change Paul from saying that is still the standard. God expects perfection. And after giving an example of Jews being held to that perfect standard of the law, he goes on to Gentiles. Notice verse 14. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. I think Paul brings this up Because an imaginary critic might object that it's not fair that a Gentile who didn't receive the Mosaic legislation on Mount Sinai and didn't with 2020 vision see the law of God with crystal clarity, it's sort of unfair that he would be held to the same demands. But Paul says here, notice your Bibles, that even though Gentiles don't have the law, they don't have it in the same way as Jews written on stone tablets, Paul says it's also true by nature. That means as creatures created in the image of God, they do what the law requires. In what sense, Paul? In this sense, they are a law to themselves. Not in the modern day meaning of that phrase that they set their own laws, they do what they want to do, but rather contrary. They are a law to themselves because inwardly God has given them His law and it has become their law and they act out on that outwardly. And this is true, verse 14, even though they do not have the law outwardly like the Jews. Without outward prompting, from time to time, Gentiles do certain things that God's law requires. Unbelievers do. Like loving their children, paying their taxes, helping those in need, working for the public good, showing honesty and integrity. Indeed, I would say sometimes unbelievers do a far better job of obeying the um, law of God in their hearts than even believers who have seen it. And I should say false believers because some of the most wicked people I have ever met have been church people. They've been religious people. They're often the most bitter people, the most competitive people, the most judgmental people, the most vindictive people. And that was Paul's feeling about unbelieving Jews. He had zero tolerance for illegalists. Zero tolerance. And he goes on to explain in verse 15, these Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and even that their conscience also bears witness. Now we already saw in chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20 that God reveals himself in creation. Through the things that are made, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. But now Paul's taking up the discussion of the fact that God has revealed himself in the conscience of others. That every man, woman, boy, and girl has a conscience. They have a law of God in their hearts. Paul says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So there's different nations, different people, blah, blah, blah. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. 
Paul wasn't saying you could look to yourself for salvation. He was simply saying that God is written all over us. It's written in our hearts, through our conscience. It's written on creation and the universe. And the conscience is important because it provides a moral sense of right and wrong in a manner that is consistent with God's revealed law in Scripture. That's Paul's point in verse 15. That God activates the conscience so that it functions like an inner dialogue. As Paul describes it there, one's conflicting thoughts accuse, that is alerting one that what they did or what they're getting ready to do is wrong, or even excuse, that is alerting one that what they did or what they're getting ready to do is right. This is simply how all men function, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not. And on a side note, all nations flourish or break down depending on their ability to discern right from wrong. There needs to be a national consciousness of innate morality. In fact, Calvin says there's no nation so lost to everything human that it does not keep in the limits of some laws. The testimony of conscience, Calvin says, is equal to a thousand witnesses. The use gentium is the Latin phrase, the law of all nations, because even nations that aren't Christian have laws. How else are murderers ashamed of murder? How else are adulterers ashamed of adultery? How else are thieves ashamed of stealing? I'm in constant contact with unbelievers who almost feel like they need to apologize in my presence for their sin. What is that? That's called a guilty conscience. And throughout the Bible, There have been all sorts of unbelievers like Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes who have been commended for the good things they did. Even unbelievers can do good things. It won't save them. But I know unbelievers that do far greater things than professing Christians. So explain that. Well, I'll explain it to you by verse 15. The work of the law is written on their hearts. The law we are under seals God's judgment. Apart from Christ. The law standard is summarized. The law standard exemplified. Now look, the law standard personified. We can't get away from God's judgment. We're all under it, Jew and Gentile. Verse 16. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This refers back to God's universal judgment on the last day. He spoke about it in verse 5. He spoke about it in verse 12. On that day, that's the day of wrath, verse 5. Paul says, according to my gospel... That is, the gospel of Jesus and the apostles that Paul was commissioned to preach will prove to be, I love this, a message that not only saves but also one that condemns because God judges on that day the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All will be brought out into the open. Hearts will be exposed. True believers will come to the surface and all others will drown in God's judgment. And who is the one that gives the judgment? The one who gives the judgment is Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This ought to strike terror in the hearts of all of those who reject Christ in this lifetime because that means Christ is going to reject him in the next lifetime. But for those of us who know Christ, we have him as our defense attorney. Because of his perfect obedience, we should not fear. What better judge could we get as Christians than the one who took our judgment upon himself? What great comfort. And what better judge is there than the pure, righteous Jesus Christ who could 
sniff out one sin in the most religious and moral person. He can sniff out that one sin. James 2.10 says that if we keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, we're guilty of breaking it all. Jesus, the rightful, righteous judge, in a sense is the personification of the law. He is the standard of it. He is the one who fulfilled it. He is the one that uses it to judge. Perfect, never sinning in thought, word, or deed. You know, hell houses used to be popular during Halloween. Sort of an alternative for Christians instead of haunted houses. I don't know if they're still around or not. Quite personally, I think that they diminish the fury of God's judgment and the glory of heaven because you can't recreate the events of something in the future you've never seen. But perhaps one redeeming quality of a hell house is the room staged as heaven. As one enters the room, he grabs a white robe and he puts it on before meeting an actor who plays the part of Jesus. The point of all of it is that that robe symbolizes Christ's righteousness. It allows one to safely enter into Christ's presence. And beloved, I want to tell you this morning that on the final day, all skeletons in your closet will be revealed. You do not want to stand before him naked then. So stand before him naked now and expose your sin and your shame. Trust in his obedient life, his finished work on the cross to receive the robe of righteousness that you receive that follows along with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. How could you not respond that way? Paul has just indicted every person who has ever existed, Jew and Gentile. It reminds me one Sunday after Jonathan Edwards preached a soul-searching sermon on God's judgment, the looming threat of eternal hell throughout it. At the end of it, the congregation was so stirred that one of the congregants cried out, does this mean there is no mercy with God, Pastor Edwards? To which Edwards said, there is mercy with God, but you're going to have to wait until next Sunday to hear about that mercy. (laughs) And you may be wondering the same thing. Well, we are racing through Romans much faster than Edwards or Lloyd-Jones would do. But we're trying to follow Calvin's philosophy of brevity and clarity. Soon enough, we're going to arrive at 321. We're going to see the beauties of justification by faith. But listen to me. If we go too fast or we go too slow, we will never appreciate the beauty of the gospel because you cannot appreciate the beauty of the gospel apart from the ugliness of your own sin. That's Paul's point. I and you are deserving of God's judgment and we only have ourselves to blame. He's the impartial judge. This is an impartial text with three lines of self-incriminating evidence. Our lips seal God's judgment. We've lied about others. We've lied to ourselves. We've lied about our God. We think we're better than we are. Our lives seal God's judgment because the proof is in the pudding. And our laws seal God's judgment. We're all held accountable. We stand condemned unless we stand in Christ. And that ought to be enough to hold us over until we get to chapter 3, verse 21. Christ alone. That's all we need. Father, thank you for the depth of your word, the power of your word, the conviction of your word. Wow. Paul, the great rhetorician. Paul, the great, powerful preacher of the gospel. Like a lawyer in court, condemns everyone guilty before you. 
how could we possibly stand before you with a straight face and say we don't deserve your judgment? We know all too well our own sin. But Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the doctrine of justification, which is what Paul is getting to. We have to see the ugliness of our sin, and we see it this morning. We confess it to you. We repent of it. Help us, Lord, to be more sanctified vessels. Help us to honor you this week, every day of our lives, as we're reminded of your saving grace through Christ for sinners deserving of judgment like us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.